Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Unspoken Words. Today, I have the privilege of Jennifer Brittingham joining us today. Hey, Jen, how are you? Good morning, Dr. E. I'm well. I am, uh, I'm joining you from the podcast, and as I look outside, we have fall leaves coming down, so it feels like a really nice fall morning that we're talking. Okay, good, good. It's uh, it's inside though, so we can't concentrate too much outside. <laughs> we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> Let's do it. Maybe we should have met at a park. <laughs> I go. I, I I do a little a uh, little talk and walk with you. That would be nice. <laughs> that would be great. It would be hard to record that, but I think it would be awesome. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, you are our primary school consultant at the Smart Center, in addition to having your own clients. So of course, I wanted you to be part of this as we talk about school today, and we're going to be doing lots of episodes throughout our Unspoken Words podcast on school. Today, I thought we would focus on what is the general approach to providing effective school-based accommodations and interventions, and why is it important to have them? So that's a loaded question, but I thought today we would just kind of chat about that, maybe go a little bit into IEPs and 504s, and some general questions and maybe some challenges within school. How's that sound? That sounds big. <laughs> There's a lot of information there. Um, what I will say is uh, accommodations and training school staff, all those things are really key. Um, as you know, when we talk to our clients, um, whether it's in the office or doing speaking events or school consultations, um, you know, we're we're a whole child approach here at the Smart Center, and that also means um, all the environments that a child, you know, may go into. So whether it's goals for home, goals for, you know, out in the community, and goals for school. So it really is encompassing all these areas. Um, when we do accommodations and we talk to school staff and helping to plan, um, it's important because think about how many hours a day our kids spend in the school environment. Um, we really want our teachers to be well equipped um, of how to handle every child's unique needs. Um, and many of our teachers sometimes will say, we've we've had kids with SM in the past. Um, we've had some strategies that have worked well, some who haven't. Um, and so being able to educate and provide information to school staff is key in our kids' treatment of overcoming their selective mutism. Um, and I can't go without saying that we can provide a lot of general information that's very helpful across the board for, for families and schools with SM. But really when it comes down to accommodation plans and training school staff, um, there is some general information, but it really does come down to the individual child, um, why they have developed and maintained selective mutism. All that has to become more individualized to really make it a uh, personal plan. Yeah, that's those are all great points. And of course, the stages on the bridge are important, too, for that unique aspect, because you may have a child that shut down with peers or shut down with teachers or both peers and teachers. They may be verbal, but they're not initiative, elaborative. They may be using transitional strategies. We'll go into a little bit of that. And of course, a lot of our past uh, episodes focus on the whys of SM and uh, the social communication bridge. But I think that's really important. One of the things you said is one reason it's so important regarding school is that it's an environment that our kids spend a ton of time in. When we are working with families and we're doing the social communication anxiety inventory, and I mentioned that the sky is we want to understand how a child is communicating with peers, with teachers, small groups, large groups. Are they starting, completing work on time? Are they, um, you know, how are they doing in school in general and academically and so forth? 
And that's important because when we're planning our treatment, not even school-based accommodations, interventions, it's in all aspects of their life, home, with guests, with peers, um, out and about in the community, stores, restaurants, after school, before school activities, whatever it is. But all of those other environments are really important to setting the stage for school. So in other words, to make a long story short that Yes, school-based accommodations interventions are critical, but so is working out in the real world. So is working in the home environment, mm -hmm. building up peer connections and so forth. It all works together. It's not like you can work on one environment and that's it. Because how often do we have, my child's not speaking in school, what do I do to get them to speak in school? And it's like, they're missing the whole boat there, right? They need to understand the child and then all avenues of that child's life where parents are facilitating of course, in the school, the teachers are facilitating. So what I explain to parents is that think of yourself at home in the real world, but think of a teacher in the school as the facilitator. So they're all equally important. And what happens is the more exposures an individual does outside the school, the more it works in school. And I only wanted to bring that up now because although we're talking about school, these other environments carry over into school or lack thereof. So if practice is not done in these other environments, progress in school will be limited. Do you agree? I do, because I think one of the things that we talk a lot about with our clients and um, at our community camps are um, what are simple ways that families, let's say, in the real world can can really bolster their child's readiness for goals in school. There's a lot of really simple steps that we may put into practice out in the real world on play dates or get togethers with peers. Um, simple things sometimes we practice at Communicamp, right? I mean, Communicamp is, is, is in the setting of an actual school where we practice some of these strategies hands-on and it's twofold, right? We have parents who are working outside of camp to do real world exposures, which benefit when they come back into the camp building to work on those school exposures. They do, they go hand in hand. Um, the best way I, I often will put it with parents is when we're working on goals, start with what's easy and readily available, right? Because if we start with something too hard, we have a harder task of getting up that hill. But if it's something that a child's already sort of doing, the environments they're already in and practicing, just recalibrating how they're doing things and, and growing or stretching some strategies in those environments, that really better prepares them to move that into the school environment and to sort of duplicate some of those tasks in a classroom setting. Yeah, no, excellent points. So when it comes to general approach to providing effective school-based accommodations and interventions, I believe the way we would start is understanding the factors into why someone's mute and why it's continuing. And again, very often, how do I get my kid to talk in school when they're overlooking these whys that we see in this population? Of course, timidity, being shy, being cautious and new or a more unfamiliar settings, um, that kind of shy child. Yes, that's the dictionary case. But what about the 30 to 40 percent of kids that have underlying speech and language issues? What about what about the individuals that have some subtle learning issues, processing delays, um, central auditory processing disorder, the kids that are bilingual, that the typical silent period is occurring where they're trying to digest, interpret the other language or their most, you know, the other language they're not as comfortable with. And we're trying to get them to, quote unquote, talk. And I think that's really important. A lot of our kids are very highly sensitive. So louder, larger, lots of people environments, boom, the classroom is going to be where they're shut down. So understanding so much more than just not speaking, I think is obviously <laughs> who and what we're about. But that general kind of understanding of the whys and the baseline stages on the bridge with peers, one-on-one, -on -one, 
they're good, they're comfy peers, they're less comfy peers, and in small groups and in large group. How are they communicating? How are they communicating with teachers? Uh, their classroom teacher versus their music teacher, or if they're older, they're, you know, special teachers in high school and middle school and so forth. So that baseline gives us, as you said, a starting point. So our general mm -hmm. approach is understanding the whys, understanding their baseline stage on the bridge. So when we focus on talk, 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 but again, where are they on the bridge? We're missing the boat. So that's the starting point and understanding the key concepts of comfort precedes communication and progress doesn't happen in a group. And what does that mean? We need to build comfort and do strategies away from the group. And we're going to do it four ways. The buddy process, the play dates or get togethers outside of school with those buddies or kids we're focusing on, small groups in the room small groups out of the room. And those four concepts are going to be what we're going to do. But you know, as well as I do, what you do in each of those small groups, what you do with the peers in terms of strategies to teach the teachers is going to differ. So you may have 10 kids with SM and there's, their approach is very different based on the whys, their stages, and so forth. So it's not just have a small group in the room, a small group out of the room, a buddy process. How are you working the buddy process? How are you asking questions? When are you asking questions, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that's really important for our listeners to you know, understand thoughts, feelings. Well, I'll, what are you thinking? Yes, lots of things. <laughs> what I'll piggyback is that what you pointed out are oftentimes um, there's three things that you said that I usually include in my school consultations at the start of the school year, mid-year, end of school year, um, when we when we might meet or be called into a school. So the whys of SM, right? So when we look at what's contributing to their selective mutism, that's that's really important for our teachers to understand and be aware of. Now, many of our, our teachers, um, if a child already has an accommodation plan in place or perhaps they're already recognizing that there's some challenges academically, they're starting to put some of those pieces together. So often when I do a school consultation, I will bring up the why of SM document and I'll say, let's take a look at this. And based on what they have maybe provided to me in advance to review, I'll say which ones, which one of these, you know, contributing factors do you feel are playing a role? Oftentimes teachers will will put some thought into that. They'll check some things off, um, and we'll discuss. So how does that in that specific learning challenge play a role in? creating a barrier to communication. That's really what that is, is that a child could have a learning challenge or a processing difficulty or a speech and language um, challenge. And with those things in place, it's creating a barrier to their successful communication. So we wanna make sure we're eliminating barriers or decreasing those barriers and putting some strategies in place to get over those humps easier for our kids. So oftentimes helping the staff to understand what that looks like, identify it, but how does it relate to the SM? That's the piece that we try to connect. The other piece then is what you point out is our social communication bridge. All kids are different in school, so they're going to present differently. We've talked about the school environment itself is quite large. There's lots of pockets of communication. If you think about the way a, a school environment works, you're really moving in and out of various group sizes all day long. You might come into school for morning meeting, and that is your largest group setting. All 23 or 28 kids in one class, um, maybe in the younger grade, we're sitting around, or maybe it's homeroom, and we're, take, we're roll calling in homeroom for our um, 
or older students. So that large group, I might not be as comfortable in a large group setting speaking, but then I, I walk through the hall with just my one friend, you know, as I'm walking to my next class and maybe I'm more comfortable speaking when it's just, you know, he, he and I, and then I get to my class and maybe it's a science lab and I'm in a small group with kids that I'm really comfortable with and I'm more communicative. But then I go to lunch and I'm overwhelmed, lots of people, and I, and I bridge down. So if you can look at those environments, we can see that the larger group or the expectation, if it's an academic expectation, it's really going to create, again, barriers to successful communication. We can't just have a one-size-fits-all way of um, strategizing for our students. It has to be individualized. So oftentimes we'll teach the school the bridge. Oftentimes, some school staff don't understand that there's various types of communication. So I love, I love your bridge. I talk to you, I said that all the time. I really love your bridge because there's so many ways to look at communication. Oftentimes we see it as we're either speaking or not speaking. But when we look at the social communication bridge, every stage that a child may be in is an opportunity to look, learn, and listen. So for instance, if a child is in stage zero, we know stage zero is that shutdown, that, that classic deer in headlights, I'm not communicating. However, some kids are shut down, they look very anxious, but other kids are shut down, but they don't look anxious, they just ignore you, but they look very comfortable. So when we look at those two, that's stage zero for both sets of kids, but they present differently. And based on that presentation, we want to address and accommodate some strategies that might be slightly different based on how they present. So if we are in stage zero, why, when, and what can we do? If we're in stage one, which is nonverbal, what strategies we would have put in place? Like you said, when do we ask questions? Where do we ask those questions to give our kids um, a, a boost to overcome some of those barriers? Stage two in itself, and I know we'll talk about some of the stage two strategies. Stage two can in, in incorporate, can I use a friend or a teacher or my parent as my verbal inter intermediary? Can I have somebody who's like a conduit for my, my verbalization in the school building? Maybe stage two is I, I'm not using anyone as a verbal intermediary, but I will make sounds. Do you know that sometimes many of our, our teachers and listeners don't realize that, let's just say you're a really humorous teacher and your, your student who has SM will laugh audibly out loud in that class. Now, is that communication where they're telling you something with their laugh? No, not yet. But is it a sign of potential comfort and readiness to then incorporate other strategies that they're willing to be audible in, in, in the presence of the teacher? Yeah, we can use various sound um, activities that we do at the center to build upon language. And can we use an, some type of augmentative device? Now, for many of our kids, this might be they're making a, a, a Google slide or they're using various apps on their Chromebook, you know, Flipgrid, Seesaw, or they're using a phone to record things. All of those could fall into stage two. Oftentimes teachers don't realize that some of the things that a child might be doing, like making sounds, right, in school or using a friend or even they recorded themselves for an assessment with a parent on the phone, um, all that can fall under stage two. And because they're able to do that even one or once or twice, that potentially could lead us into additional strategies to level up on the bridge into stage three, which is verbal. So teaching the bridge to teachers is really key because it gives them an, a, a, an ability to track their students, see their progress across teachers, environments, and see what's working well for this, this student and how do we capitalize on that. So I love those two pieces. The why of SM and the bridge are two concrete pieces that create a really nice baseline and give our teachers a, good, um, a starting point for the school year.
So a lot of our listeners are going to be honing in on school. They're going to look at our podcast list and they're going to go, oh, school, school, school. I want to listen to this. But I really do encourage teachers who might be listening to this, treatment professionals who might be listening to this to actually, uh, you know, go back to earlier episodes. I have to emphasize that the whys of SM and also the bridge, because that's going to help them understand their students. So that will give a more detailed um, understanding of both the wise and the bridge. And I think it's important. One of the things you were mentioning is about is the different stages. And so simple strategies such as handing, taking something so simple that sounds easy may not be easy, but really utilizing opportunities to hand, to take, to pass things out is a great way to stimulate social communication for our kids and buddying them up. That's a simple thing that we can do with everyone. And it's really, um, amazing how it's like, wait, I want my kid to talk, but they're not even engaging. They're not interacting maybe with peers. They're not interacting really with teachers. So really teaching teachers to facilitate. In terms of um, the approach to school-based accommodations and interventions, um, I do want to touch on the IEP or the IDEA, Individuals and Disability Educational Act, having an IEP as well as a 504, because IEPs and 504s are typical accommodation and intervention plans that we have and use and recommend, usually within the public school. Private schools, it's a bit different and so forth. But I just wanted to give a very brief overview. You certainly can simply Google the difference between IEPs and 504s. But in, you know, in our world, you know, and in general, really the individual's with Disabilities Educational Act is a federal legislation that protects students with disabilities. And that includes kids between the ages of three and 21 who due to their severe anxiety or inability to speak in terms of SM are having difficulties learning and socializing within the classroom. And a lot of families don't like to hear the word disability. It makes them feel very, very anxious. And what I tell them is try not to worry about that term. That's going to allow allow, and I'm emphasizing that, allow school-based accommodations interventions, because without it, Jen, you know, they don't make improvement. And in terms of the um, getting an IEP or the two parts to the IDEA, it's special education, an individual, an individualized teaching program for a child with SM, developing an individual educational plan. And that often includes also additional services, counseling services, speech and language, um, you know, whatever they may need to accommodate, let's say their whys or their pullouts. Then there's the section 504 and how it differs is in terms of not needing an official IEP or a plan with a 504, but it does protect a more broader child. It, it allows like because SM affects the child's ability to communicate. I would say that all children meet the criteria for having a 504 plan which is a, you know, a plan that allows to have accommodations and interventions, um, but it's not an individual educational plan. They're not kind of accommodating for their ability to perform schoolwork and so forth um, in a more kind of wise of SM standpoint. You know what I'm saying? Yes, that's true. So for instance, like under a 504 plan, because it, IDA, explains that if it if the, the challenge, the disability, um, impacts a major life function in school, they can qualify for a 504, um, a major life function in school is speaking. And so many of our 
our kids with SM, um, depending on the school district or state that they're in, um, they qualify for a 504 because they're not able to communicate. And what does that mean? Like you said, perhaps not like an IEP where they're given um, special education or um, individualized education plans, you know, for the classroom, um, individualized instruction. But under a 504, we can accommodate the lack of communication. So what are some of those things that oftentimes we see in a 504 plan would be things like certainly we cannot penalize a student if they're like a class participation grade. We couldn't give them a lower grade in class participation if they're not able to speak and speaking is the piece or if it's a um, you know a classroom presentation, you know, that we're asked to publicly speak in front of the class. The, the 504 plan allows an accommodated way to complete those tasks. So it doesn't say you never have to do them. It just allows for an accommodated way. So for many of our kids, they're given the opportunity to have a whiteboard or, you know, they, they have pencil and paper near them that if they need something. They, they can write their needs down, write their answers down and share it which is no different than a child who raises their hand and participates verbally. Um, we don't penalize for that, but we provide an accommodation where communication is a challenge. There's a, an accommodated way for that child to still participate, engage. Yeah, and I think that's important. So thinking of a 504 as a more general accommodation plan and intervention. And again, what we've learned over the years in working with different schools across the country um, and, and even internationally is that plans change in, in the U.S., IEPs, 504s. But what might be a 504 in one state or one school district seems to be more of an IEP and what type mm -hmm. of services they need. So I always say, and I've said this from the beginning, IEP, you know, 504 IEP, IEP. And I'm not trying to minimize the importance, but it really doesn't even matter what the name of the plan is, right, Jen, as long as the child is getting the accommodations and interventions. And I know our listeners like to hear kind of general strategies, and these aren't related to the bridge specifically, but a lot of our kids have difficulty, um, you know, starting and completing tasks. So needing more time, you know, in to complete a task, allowing them more time to take a test, using visual aids and manipulative materials to allow a more kind of using tasks and a little bit more of a hands-on experience, more direct and choice questionings versus open-ended thought-provoking questions. I mean, to ask a question that's open-ended, what, when, why, versus a choice where they're hearing the answer minimizes their need to think and process. So a lot of the different strategies of um, children or teens with SM is minimizing the child's need to think and process. So even if they have a why, even if it's hard to put their thoughts together to say it, even if they have some processing challenges, et cetera, et cetera, by using strategies to minimize their need to think and process, you're going to be helping so many, so many kids, um, helping them initiate. Even our verbal kids may not initiate non-verbally. So providing them, you know, ways to initiate non-verbally, um, focusing on small groups. Again, in the room, we call that the spot, right? That section in the room that's a safe place for younger children. With older kids, it's harder to have a spot, but maybe the science table or the math table or where they're doing, um, you know, their foreign language is a smaller group. And so that small group interaction is really important. Placing a child next to buddies. I mean, that's a global recommendation. But again, what you do with those buddies, how you question the child and utilize the buddies is going to differ. But the buddy process is critical. Um, using things like computers. And again, you were mentioning augmentative devices can help in terms of school-based accommodations. So I can't emphasize that enough um, and utilizing, 
you know, a different accommodations such as the verbal intermediary, if they're ready to use that, or how do we use sounds to words from general task-oriented, simple sounds, putting them together at to a more ritualistic approach. And we don't know that unless we do an evaluation because some children will not do well with sounds at all. Um, and a verbal intermediary or simply buddying them up and asking questions a certain way may elicit speech. Whereas some kids won't even use a verbal intermediary. I mean, older kids that can speak you know, you don't usually uh, you don't usually use a verbal intermediary as much as the way you question them, maybe through choice or direct, allowing a write and read. So I'm putting these general strategies out there because I know our listeners want to hear them. It's how is it organized for that, you know, particular child. So every child in my mind. Uh, qualifies for a 504 because they need accommodations and interventions. If they're, uh, if the school says, look, a lot of the things you're saying we do generally, then fine, give it a shot. But if you're not seeing progress over a course of 10 days and your child is staying stagnant, you need school-based accommodations, interventions. It's not just the teacher buddying them up or asking questions a certain way. It's going to be consistency in that and accountability on the teachers, which is one of the reasons we use the SM school evaluation form. I developed that years ago for us to be able to track how is that child doing? I mean, a lot of our kids aren't starting and completing tasks on time. That It's hard for them. Others are whipping through schoolwork. That's great. And usually, usually I find the more their academics are at play, the more the whys are there, the more severity that is in terms of other reasons why a child is mute, the more an IEP is going to come into play. And I know that a lot of our listeners are also saying, what about private school? What about private school? I'm all for private school. My own child went to a private school. Um, but that school, no matter you know what the school is, they need to be willing to accommodate your child. So even if they don't have an IEP or a 504 and that private school is going to accommodate them, the way they need to be accommodated, I'm fine. In certain circumstances, you'll see some of these um, private schools utilize the public school for services. It doesn't happen often um, to leave the school to get services or for younger children, preschool children, a lot of times the school districts will come into the school and implement um, services such as speech and language, OT, and we can then utilize those um, staff members. So I know I said a lot, and I know you're probably <laughs> writing down a ton, but you know me, Jen, I tend to talk. And I think this is one reason why I love this podcast. It gives me an avenue to just chat about everything that's in my head to get it out so that our listeners can grab what they need and it helps them. So you well, can I, go and summarize what I just said. I will. No, I, I, I get it because really, I think that's one of the things I love really about our school consultations and when we do Communicamp is that we have, you know, so many parents there that we get to really dive into all these topics and just share, um, you know, our, the experience, the, the consults, the, the, the school feedback. These are all these really great strategies. A couple things I wanted to point out that I think is really great. When we're talking about 504 plans and IEPs, you know, you made the comment, <clears throat> IEP, Shema IEP. And I want to go back to that because, um, one, like you said, it's not to minimize, you know, the need for services, but it's it's really to look at it. And I think many of our parents, you know, can understand that having an accommodation plan, requesting it from your school and showing the diagnosis and getting on board to start the IEP or 504 plan process um, in itself is great. However, 
what do we do with that plan to make it a successful individualized plan for your student? And so working with who, whether you're working with our center, your your own, maybe a parent is listening and says, well, we have a professional and really working with that professional to help um, advocate in the accommodation plan process is important. When we talk about those IEPs and 504s, things that are important to me are you want to have basic accommodations for SM. And like you said, there were a couple things that you noted that I think are important. One is that um, all kids with SM should have the ability to write down their answer and show it or type it, you know, to a teacher. Um, that's important because we know that many of our kids need to bridge down to nonverbal communication um, in certain environments. So having that ability is important. Having one-on-one -on -one time and small group time with their teacher or with familiar peers is key. I often say that at Communicamp, um, you need one-on-one -on -one time with the teacher at some point and you need small group. Point blank, we need those things in the school environment because comfort precedes communication and progress with communication will not happen in the larger group settings. So if we really want to carve out specific time to work strategies where your child is more comfortable, we have to bring it back to some of those smaller groups or that one-on-one -on -one time. Um, preferential seating is key. Now, I, I just, I'm saying this because of having um, a high school student recently where a, a teacher said the student likes to be in the back of the room, doesn't like to be put on the spot, so we keep them in the back um, so they feel more comfortable. And I always point out things and say, accommodations should change over time. We should be, you said every 10 days, we should see some type of progress. Now, I want to correct that um, in, in, or give more information to it that what does that mean? When I say that to a teacher, progress should occur in 10, you know, 10 days, that might put pressure on a teacher to say, well, this child might, we should be speaking by then. But, it, but it's all relative to that child's level on the bridge, their stage of communication, their comfort. Progress might mean I wasn't getting up and, and throwing my, my trash away freely in the classroom, but now I'm more comfortable to get out of my seat and walk across the room. Progress could be, I wasn't using my friend as a verbal intermediary in the classroom, but now I can when I'm in a small group. Um, I was able to speak to my friends at lunch, but now I'm able to, in a paired group, you know, be able to communicate with them, maybe not to the teacher yet. We're just starting to see progress and progress could be comfort building as well. A more comfortable child is also progress. And so being able to help with planning out preferential seating. Um, those are these general strategies. So for instance, a high school student that may say, I wanna sit in the back of the classroom, but for some of our kids, it might mean putting together a plan of when do we start to inch them forward? Maybe they need to be a little closer to the teacher so the teacher can have them on the radar and bring them into communication more often. Or maybe instead of moving the child seat, the teacher walks the room more often and kind of comes back to where that child is to bring them into conversation. There's a lot of these nuances that are built out of these general accommodations that are important for your child. So whether we're using visuals and not asking open-ended questions, those are all great in the the beginning of a 504 or an IEP, but then over time, we should see that that child is changing based on how these are working. And again, these are general. We have to work the strategies, right? We have to work the accommodations. Those pieces um, really have to be put in place. And I want to say something about you mentioned, um, you know, using uh, augmented devices. You know, I have a lot of kids on my caseload that a teacher, let's say during the school consult, will say, um, can we use, you know, um, a, a speak and say, can we use a Dynavox system? Can we um, have them record at home, you know, for their communication? The answer is yes. However, if you really look at any strategy, a strategy overused 
and used too many times without looking at the subtle signs of progress that a child is making can actually turn into a tool that enables the child to get stuck. I mean, even a verbal intermediary, how many times over the course of, you know, working with clients, um, you know, in schools, the teacher may say, we've had the same child as this child's verbal intermediary across three years in the, in the school setting. Maybe that, that parent wants that child to maybe be placed in another classroom, or maybe that child moves. And now we no longer have our, our peers buddy as their verbal intermediary. It was a good working strategy, but why didn't it progress? Why didn't it help that child to move on? So if we overuse any strategy without looking at those subtle signs of, of progress and communication, we can overuse any strategy that initially was used for progress and get stuck. And so we really want to help our kids to get unstuck. So the, for me, when I look at accommodation plans, it's a way of saying these are our basic foundation building strategies that need to be there to build comfort, build one-on-one, small group time, and give readiness for communication. But then over the course of the school year, we still need to track. And that's why you brought up the SM school eval form. That evaluation form is beautiful. It allows for our teachers at the start of the school year to note what they're seeing with all those accommodations in place. And one, when we go back to have maybe another consultation or the teachers want to see how are we making progress? We're collecting data. Is our IEP working for our kid? Is, is the 504 appropriate? That SM school evaluation form across time, we could track it, right? We could track it and say, well, at the beginning of the school year, we were you know, not as comfortable. We were not verbal. We were not um, you know, engaging. And now we're seeing progress month to month or, you know, uh, on a, um, you know, every three, three months on a quarterly basis, we can look at that. So accommodations are great to have in place to begin, but then it's what we do with those accommodations to work them and put strategies in place. And we don't want to get stuck. So if we do an accommodation, let's say we do a meeting at the beginning of the school year, we don't want to then say, we'll see you next year because we're really looking for opportunities to progress that child. Um, and teachers need to be aware of what does progress look like for this student? So we can no, keep that momentum going. No, you're bringing up great points. And I think the term selective mutism is the problem. I think that everyone focuses on selective mutism, 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 mutism. And again, I, I don't feel the people that used or developed that name really truly understood this. And if we can get our listeners, every one of them and everyone that truly can understand our kids to see it as a social communication anxiety rather than mutism, mutism, then you get a greater understanding that there is a bridge. And as you said, progress, you know, it's, I think of a staircase um, and I'm mentioning this to you because this is, I'm all about visuals and relating to things. If you want your child to be on the second floor, it's like, I want him on the second floor. I want him on the second floor. Why isn't he getting up on the second floor? But there's steps to get to the second floor. And if you look at the bridge as steps and you go up and down based on comfort and where they're at, that you will realize that it's not just one big leap. And I think that if we can look, listen, and learn and our kids are telling us their comfort and we can really assess their baseline comfort and their stages of social communication. We can begin really providing an appropriate school-based accommodation intervention plan. Um, I think a lot of individuals that do come to the SMART Center are kids that aren't able to be verbal right away. I mean, our CommuniCamp is an example of that. We have campers that are not verbal. They can't speak to a counselor when they start. They don't speak. They're mute. They're selectively mute. And so therefore, we are using a baseline that might be 
helping them become engaging, handing, taking, using sounds to transition to words through tasks, using a verbal intermediary from get-togethers the evening before with other campers that we encourage. In other words, they don't need to speak because kids that are selectively mute are mute and, and at least one situation. So understanding that progress may be going from engaging, handing, taking, to comfort building, to being able to communicate outside the school and then transition step-by-step step into the school. In other words, there's so many definitions mm -hmm. of progress and we see it at camp. I mean, you can just see body language changes and then the child is making leaps into verbalization just from comfort um, and then the strategies that the counselors or clinicians are implementing. And I'm mentioning that because I really want our listeners not to focus just on talking. I want them to understand that it's all about the social communication aspect. And, you know, there's kids, you know, with selective mutism that a question that comes up a lot that I just want to kind of go divert to is, you know, where they are functioning academically and do you hold a child back for SM? Like a child comes to you and says, my child's selectively mute. Should I hold them back? Mm -hmm. And what would you say to them? Well, like most answers, it depends. Um, so two part to that, because I'm looking at, again, I'm going back to their whys of SM. So for instance, um, there have been cases over the years where a parent, let's say a child um, is very sensory sensitive, um, emotionally, let's say they just social emotionally, haven't had a lot of experience with kids. Um, and I can, I, I see this in like preschool, readiness to move on from preschool to kindergarten a lot, where a parent will say, um, I'm not, we have the ability to move on we're academically doing okay, but socially, emotionally, we're just not ready. Um, should we hang back another year or move on to kindergarten? And again, this is an individualized decision. I've had clients say, you know, academically, we're really strong, we're doing well, but social, emotionally, we're just starting to make a little bit of progress in preschool. Um, so our last year in preschool, um, should we hold back one year? And there are times that I might say, let's, let's give them one more year in this school with teachers that they're, they know. Um, and because they're strong academically, we can utilize that strength in the classroom to say, now this child is like a big shot. I know this. I feel really strong. You know, I know the routine in the classroom. Um, we can use that big shot role to really develop that social emotional skill level for some of our kids. So in some cases, that might be good for some of our, our little ones. For other kids, holding back may not be needed. Um, in fact, they, they're able to move on with the right strategies and accommodations. And so what might that look like? If we're going to move on you know, into the next year, it might mean really developing a good, strong core team um, of teachers who, who understand how to work the strategies with that child. So for instance, I might be ready to move on, but I want to make sure that child has two or three familiar peers that are going to move on with them because that's going to bolster their, their, their comfortable cohort that they have. And they'll have a little more familiarity. Um, they'll be a little more confident coming into the classroom. I might work with that teacher to make sure that teacher is sort of engaging them more frequently, right? Giving them like, appropriate jobs with their peers to do so that they're, they're moving on feeling a little more, um, uh, confident in the school year. So I think it depends on what's going on that, that those underlying factors you know, for instance, you have some children who are very bright academically, but social emotionally, they're not developmentally where where their peers are. And so we have to look at that, too. Right. Because one part is if you have a child who's very bright and academically are doing well, but at some point, if they're having social difficulties and not engaging, 
do they still enjoy school? Are their, their academic success still going to shine through? Um, or does that begin to sort of, you know, dim because of the social emotional thing? So it's not just an academic piece. It's really looking at where they are socially, emotionally and what, what else they may have as a contri contributing factor that I might look at to answer that question for an individual family. Oh, great points. I mean, those are all exactly what we want our listeners to understand, that it's not just about their academics, but their social emotional development as well. And I never have held a child back for SM, but I take into account the social emotional yeah, and good. academics. I would say by nature, children, especially we're talking about younger kids here, um, they do better being the older kids, the big shot roles. So yeah. being older on the older end is always an advantage compared to younger so the birthdays, of course, play a huge role there as well. So thank you for, for addressing that, because I know our listeners like to hear that. Oh, so I want to say one more thing, one more point. You made something, a point about uh, private school and public school. Yes. I just want to go back to that real quick, because that, I think that is one of the, I could say that that question comes up multiple times at every community camp we do when we do the school training. Um, yeah. They ask about that. And I just want to, I, I want to just say a word about that before we move on. What's better? public school or private school? And I think this is a really challenging question and it's never an easy one. Again, it depends. I just wanna pull back, as you mentioned something that I think was key, determining whether public school or private school is the right fit for you and for your child and for your family, for me has more to do with, is the school open to accommodate your child's need versus any other factor? So for instance, you know, in a public school setting, most of our families have way more access to to um, accommodations. So we have more access to a school counselor, speech and language pathologist, pull-out groups, resource help. There's a, lo there's a lot more pull-out small group opportunities that can be provided in a public school setting often, um, whether it's having someone from the outside come in or what they can accommodate in the school building. So we have more accommodation availability through an IEP and a 504 plan in a public school setting. Does that mean that we can't access that in a private school? No, we, we sometimes can. And oftentimes parents will say, but private schools are smaller classroom sizes. And you said comfort precedes communication and progress will not happen in a large group. So why not put our child in a small private school where a small group is happening all the time? Um, and again, you and I mentioned this, that it's not just the accommodation, like it's not just having small group. It's what you do within the small group. It's not just having a verbal intermediary. It's what you do with the verbal intermediary to progress communication. So when you're looking at private school or public school or even multiple private schools and trying to find the, the best fit, what I usually will tell parents at our school trainings um, is to maybe perhaps in many of our books that you have um, through the Smart Center, um, we have the ideal classroom setting. Um, we have... Um, easing school jitters. We have the, actually the summer vacation and back to school guide is one of my favorites. That's really jam packed with so much information. If you go through some of the resources on our website about um, school, basic school accommodations and things of that nature, oftentimes if you can bring that information to any of the schools that you're looking at and say, this is my child's diagnosis, here are some of the strategies that would need to be implemented. And if you go back to what we said about small groups of one-on-one -on -one time with the teacher, so what is a small group? Is it a lunch bunch? Is it a, are they clubs? Are they labs? Are they, you know, breaking into pairs, you know, during, during the classroom time um, that are not just when the teacher can make it fit, but can happen consistently? those in itself could be something that a school would say, oh, we don't have the staff to provide those small groups consistently. Then you have more information to say, 
are these strategies going to work for my child? Is small group classroom, you know, enough, or is it what we do within that small group that they can't accommodate? So I would just um, let our listeners know that private school could be great for some of our students and they accommodate beautifully and sometimes they can't. So when you're really looking into placement, it's really asking, can your school accommodate these various strategies? That to me is the best question to ask and it's going to give you more information of what school to move to. Yeah, no, great points. And this is where whomever you are working with needs to provide you those recommendations for your particular child. Again, it's not just pair with a buddy. It's are they going to facilitate, you know, don't wait, facilitate teaching teachers to ask questions and doing the buddy process, the small groups, all of the things we need them to do, but do it in a very strategic way. And some schools are willing and some are not. So I think you made, you know, great points there. So um, a question that comes in a lot is, um, does it matter if a child is mute with teachers or peers, meaning the child is mute, so the goals are the same, right? (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely (laughs) not. Yeah, the goals, the goals are not the same. So, you know, that is pretty common, right? I mean, every, if if we, if we, if we lined up, you know, I don't know, I'm going to say third graders and we lined up, you know, 50 third graders, um, you're going to see some commonalities in their SM, um, those who are diagnosed with SM. um, And you're going to find that some are more comfortable with kids, right? So some of your children um, will be more comfortable engaging with kids first um, and not teachers. So what strategies do we use if they're just more comfortable with kids? If a child is less intimidated by by kids oftentimes what we might see is a pathway such as they have one or two friends that they will engage with really comfortably um, they might even maybe speak to them you know at recess time or when they're in uh, small unstructured you know groups in the classroom and so with that being said we start with working strategies and if you you know were to see me you know you know that um you know you and i are always talking about like pump and weight so i'm like making my triceps big right now by pump and weight um is that you use those strategies of what we're doing well um, verbally or communicatively or comfort comfort wise with a student and you build that into helping get more comfortable with the teacher. So I always, you know, I always do this um, visual because you know, we're very visual. So, um, you know, you know, the, 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 the uh, physical part of like, you know, rubbing your belly while patting your head, right? It's like doing two things simultaneously. Um, with most of our kids in the school environment, that is a lot of what you're doing, right? So in the environments that they're able to ver- to be verbal, you pump that muscle. So I'm like rubbing my belly, pump that muscle, pump that muscle so that they're verbalizing with their peers. But then how do you then add in the other things, you know, that are to, to help progress communication. So now you're patting your head while you're doing it. That might mean I'm going to have my, my student do more handover takeover with the teacher. I'm going to have the teacher ask more questions in a small group, even if it's nonverbal, writing it down. Um, then I might be prompting to use that peer as a verbal intermediary. So while you're building verbalization with kids, you can slowly be borrowing from that verbalization and creating comfort and engagement and opportunities for engagement with the teacher. So that might be the pathway for a child who's comfortable with a peer, you know, verbalizing with a peer. But for a teacher, if if your children are not comfortable with peers, and some of our kids do better with younger children or older children, but their their cohort, their actual peers, it's harder to come into conversation with them. They do better coming into communication with teachers first. And so if you're coming into verbalization with a teacher first, now the teacher has the same the same challenge, right? We're going to rub the belly, pat the head all at the same time. It might be building that communication with the teacher in different settings in the classroom and then slowly adding peers and maybe giving more handover, takeover opportunities where we're passing things 
out to peers, pairing them up for activities, asking nonverbal questions, and then pulling and maybe using a verbal intermediary. But it's going to look very different because child facilitated work is different than adult facilitated work teachers can can facilitate differently than maybe the 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 recess time activities so we have to then provide our kids especially if they're more comfortable with with children more adult facilitation to help bring that communication out um oftentimes we need a little more support from the peer end to get it going because adults often can ask those questions. Peers don't ask questions like, how was your day today? What do you like better, this or this? Um, kids don't often ask the choice questions, the direct questions. They don't, they, don't, they don't pause with intentionality, but our teachers can provide those strategies. So sometimes you know, using different strategies based on is it a child preference communication or teacher preference communication is going to need to be developed. No, you may, that's... You make great points. And so it's going to take the teacher to set up those question, answer, question, answer. And um, we'll be definitely doing a podcast on the importance of the give, take, back forth of communication using very structured question, answer opportunities that they need to use in school. So that, like you said, the teacher can naturally ask, did you want red or blue? Or do you want to study the environment or the government? But if a child doesn't have connection or comfort with peers, they're just not going to do it. It has to be structured and facilitated. Um, I wanted to mention from a kind of uh, understanding standpoint, if we have children that are mute and not engaging with peers, it's always a direct reflection of the amount of time they've spent with peers, either in school or out of school. So we've had COVID recently, right? So a lot of our kids have not had peer interaction. So some of the younger kids went through maybe a year or two where they weren't interacting during those key developmental stages of the young children. So they don't really have the experience, the know-how, the comfort to be able to even connect, let alone speak. So if you have a child that's consistently mute with peers, they don't seem as comfortable. That is, again, look, listen, and learn. They are telling you, I don't have the comfort. I don't have the connection. Now, that is different than the child that is comfortable engaging, but can like very mute or stuck in the nonverbal. So they're like professional mimes. They go up to other kids. They engage with other kids. They play with other kids. They laugh, but they're just not audible. Those kids are usually speech phobics um, who had a very high expectation for speech at some point in their development, speak, speak, speak. And they developed a secondary speech phobia. And of course, sounds to words or as they get older, a ritual sound approach to unlearn their conditioned mutism if they're truly stuck. So you so using an intermediary, spending time, time, time doesn't change any of that. Um, play dates, get togethers, they're consistently mute. Those are professional mimes, as I call it, actions where they are stuck in the nonverbal. I'm bringing this up, Jen, because when a child is mute with peers, whether it's an uncomfortable mutism or it's a comfortable mutism, that uncomfortable mutism is usually lack of experience and know-how um, and confidence, whereas the comfortable mutism is the professional mime and they need a different approach. So you see how that can just look, listen and learn those from those children, what they're telling us versus a child that's mute with teachers and authority figure, you know, they're, you know, or teachers in the past that I hate to say it, um, although teachers have such great intention and they have such great hearts. Unfortunately, the definition selective mutism push to speak. These children may have had teachers in the past that were very speak. You need to speak. You got to speak. I mean, my own daughter, Sophie, I mean, her teacher when she was three and a half, four years old would not give her snack unless she spoke. I mean, 
this is what I dealt with early on. Um, of course, Sophie's in her late 20s now, but I'm just saying that my own experience and that trauma that was occurred because of that force to speak. So I'd want to know why is a child not speaking to a teacher? Is it the lack of comfort, confidence? Is it the push to speak? And over time, they've just built a resistance because we get kids in our at the Smart Center who no matter how much time goes by, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, they are mute with teachers. They may have even made progress outside with adults, but school, they're very consistently mute with teachers. So again, those strategies are going to be very different than a child that is able to answer one or two quiet words to helping them become more elaborative. So I want to know why is that child mute with peers? Why is that child mute with teachers? Why is that child mute with both peers and teachers? And what types of strategies can help unlearn their mutism and build their comfort, obviously, at the same time? I know you have something to say because you got that look on your face. Well, I want to go back because I think, you know, I think, you know, you and I, we do talk a lot about the look, listen and learn. And oftentimes I'll promote to parents, you really have to know your child's communication um, better right? And, and really look at, at, at how they're communicating. Um, you brought up a good point, which is, is it comfortable mutism or uncomfortable mutism? And I wonder how many parents have thought about that phrase or those phrases with their kids that, well, is, is any mutism comfortable? But in some of our kids, yes, we can look and say, you know, you, uh, we have a, I have a client who's um, quite popular in school, not, not doesn't speak in school, but had started being very popular. Lots of friends plays most sports, plays an instrument on stage in, in band, um, doesn't mind performing in front of anyone else um, and gets every need met. I mean, teachers would say this client is a delight to have in class and very engaged and very comfortable. No, he doesn't speak, but he's engaging really nicely. If I were to look at that and say, uh, uh, just just for a general term, are they uncomfortably mute or comfortably mute? That's where we could say that child is pretty comfortable in the not not being mute. I don't mean that they're resolved of like I I am who I am. Although maybe that that client does feel that way, but. There is a difference in presentation, and I just think presentation is important to look at because, again, you're building strategies for for an individual's communication and comfort, and that's what's really key. You know, um, when we look at the bridge, it's not just, well, where are they in their communication? And you said if we're focusing on talking, then the goals are all talking goals, which sometimes IEP goals are really focused on the speaking without a lot of how do we get there? Right. I see the goal, but how do we get there? But I think understanding, is it a comfortable mutism or an uncomfortable? So, for instance, if I looked across, uh, I'm going to use a teenager, for for instance. I have a teen that sits at their desk and will not get up to um, throw things away or get up to get a tissue or sharpen their pencil. But the goal is so focused on speaking. Right. But my my high school student doesn't get up. So if, if I start putting into play some handover takeover goals and you mentioned this earlier just handing things out passing things now that goal could be really hard if my child isn't getting up out of their seat and not comfortable moving around the room they're definitely not going to pass out papers to everybody or collect everybody's folder but could i start with having them pass pass two papers down to their their row where they don't have to get up yes could i have them prompt them to come up and bring their folder to me and grab your friend's folder next to you and bring that to me i sometimes schools may say but that's, we're not, we're okay. They don't need to get up and pass things out. Why are we giving some of these goals? Because if you have an uncomfortable mutism, 
sometimes we're, we have a, an uncomfortable comfort too, which means I'm uncomfortable just being seen, moving through the room, doing non-communicative tasks. And so we have to build on that stage zero is to build up a little bit. And so that might start. And for many of our teens, many parents, especially at our community camps, because our teen groups become larger and larger um, over, over the years, um, life skills are really important. So when we're working with teens or older, older older kids with SM, it might be working on their communication, but also working on their comfort and building comfort so it builds into life skill development. Is it important to give kids jobs around the school to do things? Even if it's nonverbal, yeah. Our kids have to feel a sense of independence, of confidence that they, they have an intentional purpose of being there and not hiding under their hood or just being, um, you know, uh, invisible. So these are all strategies that sometimes we work on in school and teaching our, our teachers and our parents to look at that comfortable versus uncomfortable. That's, that's a really important piece because I think for some, and some of our listeners, their kids are verbal in school. And so we may say, well, they're pretty comfortable and they are verbalizing. So do we, what do we do next to grow their, their conversation skills or their initiation skills or carrying a conversation, you know, to open-ended questions. Those are those next steps. But there are many kids that aren't even comfortable non-verbally engaging. And we have to be able to tell that from another presentation because the strategies are going to be different. Um, yeah, no, that's great. The uncomfortable, comfortable mutism can be a podcast in itself, right? Yeah. Um, and with the uncomfortable mutism, I think the connection and peer connection is really important. And, and a really great kind of question regarding that is how do I build my child's confidence in school, but how do I help them get connected to peers? And the older a child is, the harder it is to set the world up for them, right? Parents of younger children can set up play dates and the parents are friends and the kids come along and they do simple, fun play activities, taking them to a play zone or running around outside, setting up, you know, baking and art projects. I mean, we can do that. We can train parents to do it. We can, but when children get older, middle school age and upper, it's awkward. And they'll, they'll give you that look like, wait, I don't want to have a get together with that kid. I, I don't even know them well. Like, I don't want to do that. No, no, no. And they don't want people to know. So what that means is setting up the world through the school. And that's going to be encouraging clubs, activities. But, you know, one thing I always I say at Communicamp a lot is we always focus on what our kids are not doing and what they can't do and the negatives. And that that sets them up for lack of confidence. But if we focus on what they can do and what they like, what they can do and they like, and we take those two concepts what they like, what they enjoy, may not be what parents like and enjoy, assuming it's appropriate, um, mm -hmm. but, and, and what, you know, what they like and enjoy and, and what they're basically good at, right? If we focus on those two things and we set up opportunities, small groups. So a child, I had a, um, a middle schooler loved chess. They didn't have a chess club. We formed a club. So clubs, activities, after school sports, um, whatever it might be, after school activities, again, smaller groups. So can we set up these smaller activities within school to help these kids connect with other kids over an area of interest 
something they like and something they're they're good at, you're going to see their confidence rise. So the uncomfortable mutism needs to also have a huge component of connection and comfort building. The older the kid, the harder it is. So therefore, what can teachers and do and parents or teachers or the different staff members do to set these up for these kids in school? Um, inviting them to, hey, would you come and help me with this science project in the morning? And pairing them and grouping them purposely with other kids of similar interests. Um, I had a teenager, he was in ninth grade, loved to juggle. I give this example out a lot at Communicamp. He started a juggling club. He sent the email. We worked on it in therapy. He had middle schoolers at first. Then it progressed to high schoolers. And then he went to college. And it might have been an interest he took to college. Um, in other words, he was confident in his juggling. So he wanted to form a juggling club. In other words, what can we do for the uncomfortable kids to get them connected? And it's often setting up that world for them and utilizing clubs, activities, small groups, um, whatever they're acclimate, math, science, reading, teaching, helping other kids, helping younger kids. All of these things are going to build their confidence and connection. C and C, connection and confidence. I yeah. know you have something to say. <laughs> I, know I can't it. help I it. it. I can't. Yes, well, I was going to say that, but some of the things we're bringing up, I don't know if parents always feel confident to ask for, right? So that's why, you know, working with your professional or, you know, your advocate or having your point person at school is so important because we, we have to think outside the box sometimes, right? I mean, I have a, I have a client I'm working with that they, none of the after school clubs are their thing and they don't have interest in them. So then what do you do with that? If a child is like, nope. I'm not doing those things. That happens. Many of our kids at camp will say, I'm not going, um, or I don't, I don't want to participate in that. Um, so how do we create that? Can you ask for those things? I'm always an advocate of having informal meetings with teachers. If you have access to a point person, is that the counselor, the vice principal, um, who, whoever that may be, the school psychologist, who is your point person at school? And to be able to say, one, as a parent, Maybe your child is middle school or high school, and we're not at the, the place of setting up the world for them like we can with some of our elementary school age kids. But can we have a meeting and discuss what does that look like for our older one? What are potential interests? So two things about that. I often will give a visual of a dartboard to many of our families and say, I want you to think of the dartboard as all the layers. You know, the center of the dartboard, that bullseye, that's that's like our most ideal thing that we want to see happening maybe in the classroom. The large group learning, you want your child verbally communicating, participating, raising their hands, sharing their answers, you know, um, letting, letting their class and their teachers see the very essence of themselves, what you see at home. Um, but how do we get to that bullseye? And sometimes we have to start at every, every rung that goes around, every circle, right? All the way out to the furthest part. So what is that furthest part? The furthest part for some may be at home. That's where we're going to start working strategies and goals. And maybe we move in a little, little more into that bullseye for the next rung in. And that might mean meeting with the counselor, you know, or meeting with a small group. And what does that small group look like? A, a couple examples that come to my mind, especially for our teens, because I always feel like teen, teen parents are very frustrated or teen uh, teachers can be very frustrated with what, what to do? How do I help? I want to be helpful, but everything maybe I'm trying just isn't the right fit. And again, it's individualized. We've talked about that. Selective mutism is selective. It is selective per the person, the environment, the people, the expectation, the comfort. And so we have to be aware that even when we put strategies together, the strategies have to be in pockets, in, in pockets. It's not going to be across the board, you know, one size fits all. 
But oftentimes, for instance, I have a client right now who is doing, um, has no club in school they enjoy. But two things I know they can do. One, they tend to feel more comfortable with younger kids versus their peers. Um, so, and they tend to do better with something very structured where they feel like a hot shot. So where, where it's not just having conversation with peers, but they have a task they're doing with their peers. Two things we began to role. Exactly. And a big shot role sounds like it's elementary school age, but we sometimes have to think that way for our teens too. How do we level them up with something that's within their wheelhouse? What is your kid's wheelhouse? So for my client, yearbook, now, your book was boring to my client. My client would have said, that sounds boring. and I don't want to just cut out pictures and work on a book. That's not going to help my social skills. But what we did do is we decided my client does really good with being in charge of like interviewing people, right? Like I've got a big shot role to interview. So instead of putting the book together in a quiet room with other kids and I'm not really engaging, that wasn't their scene. We sent them with a buddy with structured questions around to teachers and certain groups of peers. And we collected funny memes or funny sayings. So she interviewed to bring that information back to your book. So that was her, her, her way of participating and it worked for her. The other part was, can she read to some of the younger kids? So can she take one lunch? You know, she goes down to the younger room and she does reading and plays a game, you know, with some of the kids. She feels more comfortable verbalizing to the younger groups. So those are two ways to take my clients gifts the less intimidation with younger kids and my ability to write out questions answers worked really well for them so we put them how do we connect them to their peers we started with the yearbook process we started with those direct questions so now we're starting to see growth there because we really looked at what worked for them so what is it that your teen can do or would be willing and sometimes it takes some brainstorming and working with your staff to come up with some things what what's available but, but there's, there's, a, there's a way, there's a way to create those pockets. And that's what we want our, our parents to really get, grasp that look, listen, learn. So we can really dive into what is that pocket to begin and really get the strategies going and build your child's comfort because it will start to transition to other areas. Yep. No, great, great points. I keep saying great points. Could you, you know, I think the nice thing about us doing this together um, and I, and I'm confident our listeners you know, appreciate is that we we feed off each other. You know, we've been doing this together for so many years, working together, Jen. I just love you. And you're, like my, um, you're, you're my work wife. I know, it's true. <laughs> we've just been together forever. I mean, we're family yeah. at this point, but what's so yeah. nice is that, yeah. you know, we complement each other. And so it's really nice when I have something to say and then you go into a whole another aspect and vice versa. I think that lends itself to great great conversation. So I always appreciate, you know, the angles you share and, and so forth like that. So um, I thank you, you know, so much. And I know we've been talking for a while. It's and we always do and we can take a podcast for like three hours. But I think we really did kind of sum up how to kind of set up and I'd like to just summarize for our readers, you know, um, effective accommodations interventions in school. In other words, what's the process for that? And one thing I'd like to say is the need to write letters and we help our families write letters to the school. I always say, don't worry, we'll put that together for you to request an IEP, why a 504 um, and really help them because they don't know what to say and they don't know who to give it to to start the ball rolling. And the IEP process can take quite some time. Um, so it is a process. And I can't emphasize enough that you know, the importance of testing these kids. And I know we're coming to the end of this time because I know we'll go forever if we continue with this, but I think it's really important that testing these kids is really something that needs to be done. And the big question comes, how do we test a mute child? 
So there's comments I'd like to say. One, two, for we did a speech and language study um, with Evelyn Klein and Sharon Armstrong as principal investigators of how do you test a child's speech and language skills? And we have that um, on the resource page in the research section of the selectedmutismcenter.org website so that you can see how do you test a child and using parents as evaluators as a very reliable way um, an effective way to, to learn about their skills in speech and language, but also to be able to utilize strategies um, in the testing process as we're doing psychoeducational. I and mean, one thing that at the SMART Center, our whole division of our center is testing, the testing and assessments, testing psychoeducation, full batteries, partial batteries, ADHD, autism, et cetera, to really pull out what is really going on with the child. And so as we're developing effective school-based accommodations and interventions, we really do need testing in a lot of the kids. And to get an IEP, you do you need testing. So we can request an evaluation through the school, but there's many times that the school can't test them or they're not comfortable testing them because the child's mute. So what do you do? Well, one, you find a center that can test a mute child. And that's one thing that we take a lot of pride in is our assessment division of the SMART Center. So for any listener that is interested in testing, please reach out to us, um, Smart Center at SelectedMutismCenter.org. We can certainly um, do a call with you to decide if that would be the right fit for you to start with at the Smart Center. Um, in terms of testing, we do this for lots of providers around the country as well. So that's important. Um, and um, the other thing is having somebody key in the school. We call it a key worker, a point person, as you mentioned, someone that can be your child's advocate in school, someone that your child may need to meet to meet with, a counselor, um, a school psychologist, a speech pathologist, an OT. It really doesn't matter as long as it's somebody that can be consistent, that our kids connect with and that we can connect with. So in IEPs and 504s, there's always a key worker, somebody that is the key person so that if we're doing education and training, they're organizing, making sure people are coming to that training or they're responsible for sharing that information um, and being able to track communication is important as well. So tracking the child's progress. I mean, we do that through our SKIES, so social communication, anxiety inventory, our SM school evaluation forms, but teachers need goals and things to be working on. So as we're doing trainings and follow up with trainings, there's bullet points that they need to work on that's going to be tweaked based on progress. And so I guess what I'm trying to say, there's a lot and we can go on and on, but I think this is a nice place you know, to end, to know that every child needs accommodations and interventions and the type of accommodation intervention is going to be unique based on that child's unique needs. And um, every school needs to be trained because not all kids are the same. So when a school says we've had a child with selective mutism, we know what to do. I'd say, oh, God, we've seen thousands and thousands over the course of our careers. And honestly, we've never seen two that are the same. There's similar strategies, let's be honest, and there's ways to take those similar strategies and tweak it. Um, and basic things will work well, but in order to be effective, they need their own unique plan that's going to be specific. It's like a recipe, right? You can have a hundred different types of chicken soup, but the chicken soup that works right or, feel, or tastes right for the right child, you know where I'm going with this. Mm, I do. <laughs> you know. So in other words, it's it's a unique recipe, and I think we need to really make sure that our listeners understand that. Anything you want to add before we end this episode? 
Yeah, I would just say that, um, you know, we're here to provide support. I mean, and whether that's, I, I don't know if, you know, m- many of our, you know, um, listeners may not realize this, but, um, you know, we provide, you know, parent coaching and, and professional consultation, which means you don't have to be a client of the center to access, you know, support or just question answer time, um, you know, with us as providers. Um, school consultations are not just for our clients here at the Smart Center. We do a lot of school consultations for uh, families and schools all across the country um, that are may not necessarily be utilizing, you know, um, our center for treatment. They have other professionals, but um, they just want, you know, another layer of resource um, you know, for their school, for their student. Um, and that's accessible, you know, through our center. So I always say, you know, if, if we're, if, if a listener is feeling stuck, um, you have us as a resource. I mean, there's a ton of information on our website, um, that they can go to, to look at resources, whether it's like you said, for the research, um, knowing how to do testing, um, do, if they need help with testing or testing related questions, um, these are all things that we do. We provide those consultation services so that you don't have to feel as though um, you're waiting for someone locally to do that training. We can certainly, you know, partner with you in your school. We want to be a resource to anyone who should need it. Yes, that's, um, I appreciate you adding that. And um, we're here. And that's one reason that I wanted to do this podcast, Jen. I mean, this is my way after 30 plus years to share my knowledge that no matter how much somebody reads, no matter how many times someone talks about SM, I feel like there's so much information that we can share that I can share. And so I appreciate our listeners trusting us to listen to what we have to say, because I really believe that if they get one thing from each podcast, and I'm really confident they'll get many things, it's going to help their child. I mean, how often do we get emails from families that we never even necessarily worked with, but appreciate our resources? So it is a privilege, and I am grateful to be able to do this podcast, and I'm grateful for you. (laughs) I'm grateful for you as well. (laughs) <laughs> and for this time, I really, I love this time together. And um, I think this is one of the areas that you and I, like you said, um, just enjoy the most is just sharing information. Um, I say this at the end of every podcast. I want our families, our listeners, our teachers to feel hopeful. Um, no matter where your child is on the, on the bridge or how you feel like you're struggling. Um, I always feel like when we really look at any individual student or client, um, there's always pockets that they're, they're doing pretty great and to work out of. Um, sometimes parents don't always see that or school staff may not see those pockets. Um, you've got way more at your fingertips than you may realize. And that's why I love uh, consulting because I'd like to pull out that hope for our families. And that's another great, that's great. And another great thing to say to our listeners is I want you really to look at your students look at your children and look, listen, and learn from them. What are they telling you? And really focus on all that they can do, that they are doing, not what they're not doing, because our children are incredibly sensitive beings and they will feel what you're projecting out. So if you're worried, you're scared, you're always upset, wanting them to speak, are you speaking, asking them a hundred times a day, are they speaking, you need to speak if you speak, and that makes them feel bad. So look at all that they are doing. and focus on that and tell your child every single day how proud you are of the things that they are doing, not what they're not doing. Because I think that all our kids are brave for just showing up. And we say this at Communicamp. I mean, how many shutdown kids do we see at Communicamp when they're coming to the, uh, when they're first there? They can be shut down. But over the course of, you know, the day, the weekend, 
um, they make such great progress and many of them just cross the bridge into speech and they make amazing progress. And I think a lot of that progress is a result of our amazing clinicians. Don't get me wrong, but also we're educating parents. We see the change in parents. So for me, I really want our listeners to focus on all that the kids are doing, not what they're not doing. And we can go from there. And I'll look forward to doing this more with you. I love our, our meetings. So we need more dates. So we'll talk off, off the podcast of more dates to come. Sounds good. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to share my knowledge. For more information, please go to selectivemutismcenter.org. If you have questions on anything covered in this podcast episode, we want to answer them. Please head to selectivemutismcenter.org forward slash ask D-R-E. And we'll do our very best to answer them in upcoming podcast episodes, Smart Center newsletters, and on social media. Thank you.